Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis, and I am your host. Today, we have Dan Romito. Dan is a consulting partner at Pickering Energy Partners, focused on capital market strategies, messaging, and pragmatic implementation. Over the course of his career, Dan has advised several hundred private companies, public issuers, and asset managers on how to optimize capital deployment strategies, pursue quality pools of capital, and deploy ESG-related directives. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you for having me, Amon. I'm looking forward to this. Great. So maybe just a level set, can you discuss your career path and how you got to where you are in your current role? Yeah. I So, I mean, the Cliff Notes version of it was I never really intended to go down the route of sustainability professional per se, or, you know, when I graduated B-School, read around the financial crisis, I didn't even know what ESG was. I don't even think it actually was around in the United States. After the financial crisis, bounced around a little bit and then ended up at NASDAQ. And one of the great things about NASDAQ when I got there was it was still, relatively speaking, a smaller, scrappy mid-cap firm trying to compete with the quote-unquote big boys. Part of the, the differentiator that they had was they just had, being a stock exchange, a vast amount of data that they were tracking, but not necessarily doing anything with. And so you know, saw the opportunity of, of building out these analytics platforms to help corporates better understand the behavioral tendencies of their investor base. So who is buying the stock, who is selling the stock, what type of metrics and what type of profiles do portfolio managers for a given fund tend to implement within their respective portfolios. And over the course of time, you know, our team built out a, a very robust suite of, of services geared predominantly at investor messaging. And then when the rise of passive began to take place with BlackRock, this would have been right around 2015, 2016, a lot of U.S. companies hopped upon to Europe to try to attain greater amount of European capital within their shareholder base. And at that time, when we were talking to them, a lot of companies were coming back and saying something along the lines of, yeah, it was a great meeting, but they wanted to talk about this ESG thing, this ESG thing. And, you know, increasingly it came up more and more. So NASDAQ was kind enough to ship me over to, uh, to Europe on a number of occasions and speaking with investors, speaking with corporates over there, you know, they're obviously four or five years ahead of where the United States was. So when I got back to the States, we, we were conveying a lot of the, the, the information and a lot of the learnings and teachings that we had gathered in, in Europe. And one thing led to another. You know, when I, when I made the hop to Pickering, it was frankly really, really difficult. I thought I was going to work at NASDAQ for the rest of my career. I, I, I love NASDAQ. I loved everything that we accomplished there. But right before COVID, you know, a year or two before COVID, I just became obsessed with the energy transition, just the notion that a sector was changing so dramatically in such a short amount of time. And what was fascinating is it was really, really hard to define what the quote unquote energy transition was. Like, is it energy? Is it technology? Is it consumer discretionary? Like, what is it? And one of the things that I observed that corporates were doing a fantastic job or the successful ones that were doing a really good job of conveying their narrative is they were utilizing a variety of non-fundamental data points, predominantly ESG related data points to help tell their story and was making a difference uh, within the market. So hop ship. And then here I am today where we're predominantly focused on the energy spectrum. So the, the firm does not endorse one energy source over the other. We just know based on our analysis that 
oil, gas, coal is going to be around for the foreseeable future. And there has to be improvements uh, within that space on a variety of different fronts. And one of the best ways of, of tracking progress, understanding differentiators, comparing competitive modes is to implement or incorporate ESG-related material, ESG-related data points. And simultaneously, you know, when we think about the energy transition, we look at it more from an energy optionality or an energy expansion perspective. There's a lot of cool technologies that are beginning to become employed within the global economy, whether it's wind, solar, hydrogen, electrification, et cetera. A lot of these technologies, believe it or not, are being developed within the fossil fuel space. So you're, you're having this inflection point to where a industry that was conditioned to think a very certain way for the last called half century is now beginning to take on or being forced to take on new perspectives, new data points, new technologies, and telling that story in some cases can be really, really difficult. My focus today is helping those companies track, understand, define, and then report and ultimately tell what, or what the data is conveying um, for each respective company we work with. And that's really interesting. And I, I think one thing that people don't really understand when it comes to ESG, especially for fossil fuels, is that there's this sort of assumption that anything and everything that they're doing is greenwashing. Right. And it's really opportunity for them to say, don't look at, you know, this fundamental part of our business, but look at all the nice things we're doing in the social or governance component or how we're looking to decrease our own carbon footprint. So, but pragmatically, right, there is still this need until there is a predominantly renewable energy source that is easy to use, that is cost competitive, that there still is going to be this mix of energy that energy sources that people are going to have to contend with for the foreseeable future. And that leads me into my next question. You know, when we think about energy, we think and thinking about ESG, we're always hearing about sort of, I think every five to seven years, there's a, there's a big sort of idea, concept or, mm -hmm. or thing that people sort of latch on to. And what we're seeing now is decarbonization is mm -hmm. a really hot topic. And it seems like everyone, regardless, regardless of your industry, they're either setting net zero goals or science-based targets all on the perception of decreasing carbon output and what the sort of carbon that comes into their business. So I'm curious, what's your take on decarbonization? Yeah, so I, I tend to agree with you high level and conceptually about you know these trends that emerge every half or every de every, every decade. On the decarbonization front, look, it's clear that the global economy is is focused on decarbonization and. Once again, it's 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 a market force. It is a consumer-driven demand, and you know me being a massive believer in let the market forces and dictate how companies adjust. You know, I, I think one of the unfortunate parts of, of that mindset is that it's becoming very polarizing. Decarbonization conceptually is a good thing, and the reason that it's a good thing is because it forces companies to think about how to become more innovative. And, and how to introduce new technologies to the marketplace. And, and you see this in the, in the data. You know, one of the data points that I tend or that people tend to overlook, particularly when they're analyzing the fossil fuel space, is that since 1975, the United States has incrementally increased annual GDP 2.7% per year. 
And we've been able to do that with about 30% less energy usage. So in other words, the, the U.S. economy has very much cracked the code on decoupling, meaning we can use far less energy to grow our economy. And that has impacted the globe, right? The United States is the single largest economy. So whatever we do has a tremendous ripple effect within the global economy. You know, in some cases, consumption-based emissions are down, you know, since 2000, you know, 60%, and it has not come at the expense of, of GDP production. The reason I think we've done that is because energy-focused companies, whether it's on the renewable side or, you know, predominantly on the fossil fuel side, because the energy mix within the United States is just under 85% fossil fuels, oil, gas, and coal, they're continuously introducing new technologies to the space. You have about one-fifth of renewable-backed BC funding coming from what is commonly referred to as big oil. You have about almost a little over 25% of green patents uh, being produced by energy-related companies, fossil fuel-related companies. And once again, I don't want to sound like an apologist for the fossil fuel community. I'm just spitting out stats. But if you're talking about decarbonization, in many ways, the U.S. economy has already figured that out. There's a ways to go, clearly. And then as it relates to net zero, I am personally against net zero. I think it's one of those unicorn goals that is going to be almost impossible to attain without bankrupting the economy or just utilizing, let's call it funky math to try to get it on paper. What I am a fan of is the pursuit of net zero, right? If, if we pursue net zero, by definition, we are going to come up with a variety of really innovative and useful functional technologies that do not call into question the reliability of energy. It's going to, in theory, make energy as cheap, if not cheaper. And then in terms of global reach, you, you still have a variety of the globe, whether it's India, Southeast Asia, portions of Eastern Europe, uh, South America, Central America, you know, there is a vast proportion of the world that just does not have access to reliable energy sources. And what they utilize as a substitute is sources of energy that are anti-decarbonization, right? It actually adds to the emissions profile. So to me, it makes perfect sense that if, if, the, if the data is telling us that the consumer wants to decarbonize the economy. And if the data is inherently telling us that the most efficient and cleanest and safest producer of energy happens to be the United States, the, the UK and Norway are, are in that uh, neighborhood as well, then we should frankly unleash the beast as it relates to US energy production and provide these other companies that really do struggle with energy affordability and energy reliability because decarbonization at a global scale does not take place if you don't offer struggling, quote unquote, struggling developing countries with the capabilities that we have right now. They're just, they're just not going to accept the status quo. You see this with India, for example. India, in my opinion, is not going to say, hey, we're, we're just going to keep our population where they're at in terms of standard of living, like every population wants to increase and improve their standard of living. And what are they doing now? They're buying Russian oil, like this is an empirical fact. Empirically speaking, <laughs> Russia is a lot, quote unquote, dirtier in terms of production than us. And so that goes against decarbonization. So 
the very long-winded answer to decarbonization, your question on decarbonization of, yes, it is, it is a good thing. Yes, we should strive to achieve it. Once again, that strive should not necessarily come at the expense of, of a disproportionate cost, cost burden. But empirically speaking, the United States has already showcased their success in this neighborhood. So it just makes sense that we should expand it to other areas, particularly developing countries that don't have that specific luxury. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting points that you bring up there. One of the things I think a pushback folks would have would say, yes, while well, the economy, the U.S. economy has gotten more efficient, that's also due to a push by regulators, by different industries to say, we want this change to occur. And I think what a lot of folks are looking for is for the federal, state, and local governments to have more of an active role in how can we decrease our carbon emissions as a community, as a state, as a nation, and really unleash the power of private sector to meet these goals and objectives that we have laid forth because they have done that in the past. And I think, I think that's what some people would push back on. But I think a lot of what you brought up brings a, a really interesting concept that we're hearing is that folks typically have said, look, we've had these issues in the past and now it seems that when it comes to sustainability, ESG and the environment, all of this is a ploy to reach and become this sort of image of what they consider, I guess, woke capitalism or, or, or woke ESG, where there's this idea that I am not necessarily doing all this stuff because it's it's a value add for the business, but it's really just a way to essentially greenwash myself into what other to make people feel good. Right. Curious about, you know, when you talked about, especially in the energy sector, you know, there could be some folks who would say, look, all the great things that you're talking about that the energy sector is doing is really just adhering to what people want them to do because it's really a nice thing to do, but doesn't necessarily improve the bottom line and mm -hmm. sort of fundamentally goes against why businesses in is actually created. So I'm curious about the perspective on that. Yeah. So, so a couple of different things, you bring up a really good point on the regulatory front. And so I'll address that first. Clearly there's always going to be a need for regulatory involvement, right? I think the, the power of the United States capital markets is largely due to the fact that there's a, there's a high degree of trust, high degree of relative trust within our system. And that's predominantly a function of the transparency that is required from a regulatory front, right? We have for publicly traded companies and private companies, just a slew of regulatory mandates, whether it's reporting, whether it's specific rules, whether it's a certain degree of transparency, all that is in place to, to theoretically maintain a high degree of trust so that the flow of capital is never impeded. One of the examples where it's particularly in the energy space where regulation becomes onerous is when it becomes unpractical, right? There, there, there has to be a balance between regulatory burden and the autonomy and the freedom that you provide participants within the capital markets and, and corporate management teams. And essentially seeing this in California, right? California has a rule where I believe it's 2035, could be 2030, but I think it's 2035. They want to eliminate the sale of combustion-based uh, vehicles. 
on paper that that is a great aspirational goal to have, but it clearly has very substantial ripple effects and unintended consequences that I don't think the regulators necessarily took into account. To your point on sometimes doing things to make people feel good, this is an example. And the reason why that 2035 rule is so concerning to me is that right now electric vehicles in California have a penetration rate probably around 8%. It could be a little bit higher, but it's definitely under 10%. There has been a variety of occasions where Governor Newsom has asked people not to charge their EV, or there's been certain brownouts, blackouts, or just massive, let's call it delays in in energy availability because the grid just can't handle it. So if you take into account that EVs are roughly 10% of all sales in California, and there's already issues with the grid being able to maintain enough power or enough consistent power to address just that 10%, what happens when the penetration rate of EVs is 40 or 50%? The grid becomes less reliable. The grid becomes a little bit less stable. That has real economic considerations, very adverse economic considerations. You don't want that in place. So once again, there there has to be, you need regulation, but that regulation has to be incredibly pragmatic. It has to be very, let's call it based in evidence and data as opposed to something more emotional or, or trying to appeal to something altruistic. Your second question on the wokeism, and this is sort of a segue I mean, just like anything in our society today, these, these things tend to operate on a spectrum. And, and as it relates to ESG, that spectrum, I like to say, is, is shaped very much as a barbell. So on, on one hand, for me, like when I walk into a room and I'm giving a presentation, there is a contingent of the audience that says, here's Romito, this Birkenstock wearing hippie who's going to chain himself to a tree and talk about how evil fossil fuels are. And then there's another contingent on the other side of the barbell that here that says, there's that right wing nut job, Romito, who's from Florida, who's going to convince us that we should just dig holes in the ground and blow stuff up. And obviously both, both are wrong. Like most things in life, the, the answer or the approach is it, it lies in the center, in, in the center. So there are clearly some things that have gone overboard that can be considered woke. But in terms of the utility of ESG data, I think the pragmatic user looks at non-fundamental characteristics of the business like health and safety or governance or water usage and water stewardship and waste and spills and environmental stewardships and community involvement. And if, if you're analyzing, let's say, 10 options for your portfolio, and theoretically, all things are equal as it relates to the financials, so similar income statement, balance sheet, statement of cash flows, what objectively can be utilized as a distinguishing feature? Well, I would personally want a holding or a company or even the company that I work for to have a positive trending record on emissions, a positive trending record on health and safety, a positive trending record on water stewardship, governance, et cetera. I, I think in today's heightened and oversensitive environment, you can skew anything towards being woke or anti-woke, whatever it may be. I think the challenge for the for the marketplace is to figure out how to remain focused on as what I refer to as the radical middle, 
like what are the material non-fundamental aspects of, of a business and how are they trending and how does that trend impact long-term performance and then the experience of the customer, the employee, the community, et cetera. And then sort of piggybacking off of that, looking, thinking about the data and empirical information, are you seeing investors, whether they be active or passive, really starting to utilize ESG data to inform their investment decisions? Or is there something that you're seeing th them try to grapple and try to understand a little bit more so that they can do that in the future? Yeah, it's a combination of both, right? I mean, in terms of the utilization of data, like many things, right, that also operates on a spectrum. You know, there's there's ESG ratings, whether it's MSCI or Sustainalytics, that some investors consider gospel. And there's some investors that think it's very foolish and they don't trust it or nor do they use it whatsoever. There's also a difference between how index funds and active managers utilize it, right? Index funds are predominantly led by the big three, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. Those index investors have a slew of ETFs and indices where portfolio construction is fueled by ESG ratings. That is a almost a trillion dollar business, if I'm being honest. On, on the active side, you have stock pickers that hold, let's say, five to 20 stocks at any given time. A stock picker is going to take their time and methodically look at every single aspect of the business. Their focus is, I want to buy a stock that I can hold for five to 10, maybe even 15 years. And because they look at every aspect of the business, by definition, they're going to look at material related ESG considerations. On the index side, I think in my humble opinion, they've gone a little bit overboard. An index manager by definition is supposed to be quote unquote passive. So that essentially means if you have a certain market cap and you operate in a certain sector and you're located in a certain geography, you're eligible for, for the index. And of course there's nuances, a little bit you know, broader nuances that impact that, but generally speaking, it's market cap sector and geography. Index investing has grown so large where it, it is not uncommon for BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard to collectively own anywhere between 30 to 40% of an S&P listed 500 company. That that degree of concentration is, is not a good thing. And it's not a good thing from a variety of different reasons. But from the perspective of, of risk, over concentration in a portfolio is, is, is a heightened risk. You also have this dynamic to where you know, in many cases for a publicly traded company, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard are calling the shots. And a lot of the information that they are utilizing is just incorrect. It's either incorrect because ESG scores tend to display very low correlation. You may be amazing with MSCI and you could be, you know, terrible with Sustainalytics. I think the latest study shows that the average correlation between the major ESG providers is right around 35%. That is a problem. I would also say attaining scale is probably really difficult for them. Stewardship teams have to track the non-fundamental data of literally thousands of companies. BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, given their size, basically hold every equity on the planet. So just it, it's just impossible for a stewardship team to fully evaluate and scrutinize every single holding. So there's a lot of corners that are cut. And they probably, in, mo in some cases, not all, but some, fall back on ratings are what, what what the ratings are. And then you just have the rise of machine intelligence capabilities to where a lot of this information is is scraped algorithmically 
in the public domain. So looking for very specific language in very specific places, and those aren't as accurate as we'd like. So I think in many cases, ESG data is remains in its infant stages. Um, it definitely remains nuanced uh, and it has a really long way to go because in most cases, there is a distinct disconnect between what the economic realities of a business are and what the narrative of the ESG ratings reflect. Yeah, I would add to that. When we think about ESG ratings and information, there is a lot of it can be boiled down to how do you communicate and which are the most material ones for that business. So, right, if you're working in Acme paper, your CDP score may be very high because that's where you focus a lot of your attention on, you understand the methodology, but you may not care that much about MSCI and that sort of level of intent is reflected in the scores as well. And I think that's one of the reasons that they're so, the correlation is so low. I would also say, I think the next stage of data is for companies to start to leverage this data to make decisions they would for anything else in their business organizations. So that's what I think is the next sort of phase of all of this will be is that those companies that are invested in by whether it be active or, or passive, ideally you'll start to see those companies that can really start to make quality business decisions because they have quality ESG related data. Now they're, because a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about ESG data is how are you managing the intangible? How are you managing things that are germane to your business, but aren't necessarily the five core things that you're you're focused on in a day-to-day basis that maybe really drive revenue, but they could drive other things that your business cares about, such as how are you getting the employee base? How are you retaining them? How are you making sure that, you know, you're not on the cover of a New York Times expose <laughs> in the future? So right. like, those things will show up because what we're also seeing is that while there is, to your point, that barbell about sort of woke capitalism or woke ESG versus those who don't, that radical middle, there is this movement to say, I need to understand more of what's happening because I see the impact of climate change in my own personal life. And I think they are going to start to say, I want to work for a company that reflects the values. And we see that with younger generations. So in order to attract, retain talent is going to be very important. And then also when you think about Fortune 500 companies, they have these lofty goals, whether folks believe that they can meet them or not, they're pushing the requirements down to their strategic suppliers and is rolling downhill where companies who are middle market, lower middle market, who never had to figure this stuff out are also going to have to grapple with this. So I think there's a lot more opportunity in many respects that will happen. And as the data improves, there'll be more, you'll, you'll start to separate the wheat from the chaff yeah. Uh, companies that can really understand data, how do they manage it, and how they really incorporate it into their core functions versus ones that don't. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, a couple a couple things to unravel there and you bring up some really good points. I, I think there has to be a clear distinction maybe between ratings and data. Ratings are a function of a subjective methodology employed by a single party trying to provide a score to an external audience, right? And so there, there's there's a myriad of issues with that. You, you cannot have subjective methodologies creating scores that, that, in my opinion, influence portfolio construction because 
everyone's going to look at that respective weighting methodology differently. And I'll give you a couple of different examples. So within the MSCI framework, the last time I checked, the weight associated with environmental for Amazon is right around 12%. The weight for the environmental associated with Chevron is about 45, 46%. Chevron is clearly in in E&P in the energy space. But what makes Amazon that respective weighting a little bit irritating is that their sector designation technically is internet retailer. And because their sector is internet retailer, the corresponding emission or the environmental weighting is is only 11%. Now, once again, I I don't know what the math is. I, I, I don't know what the proper weighting should be, but I do know that is that is very subjective and that doesn't reflect economic reality. Case in point, Amazon has a massive delivery business, right? If you look in my garage, Mrs. Romito has 50 empty Amazon boxes from you know the, the week's most recent round of, of orders. So I'm not at all saying Chevron shouldn't be 50. I am saying that Amazon's probably isn't 11%. And that is a an issue across the board. So ratings predominantly with an MSCI, and I'm sort of picking on them because they're the most prevalent, they're, they're the big fish in the pond, um, that, that presents an issue. On the data side, I will say that if you were to ask publicly traded corporate management teams to track ESG data five years ago, you probably would have been chased out of the room with pitchforks and knives. Today, it's just more of a accepted common practice. And the reason is obviously there, there is a push for that data amongst the investor base, external stakeholders and insurance companies. But your point on the intangibles is is one very well taken. There's an interesting statistic that the SEC released, I believe it was three years ago. Um, it could have been four. But you know, at that time, one of the commissioners of the SEC testified before Congress that about 80% of the data that is utilized in today's capital markets was created in the last five years. So you've had this massive tidal wave of new data sets and new technologies and new capabilities. And, and that's exciting and that's amazing. And that's the way that it should be. But it also remains in, in its relative infancy. But suffice to say, the market has been just smashed in the face with all new data sets and everyone's trying to figure out how to utilize them. From a pragmatic perspective, where we see the greatest utilization is on, on a couple different fronts and, and, and you had mentioned them. So number one, I'm technically a millennial, right? I'm an older millennial. But the millennials think different than how their parents thought, who thought different than their parents. And then the generation below us, so like if you're like 20, 25 to 35, let's say, probably 25 to 30, whatever it is, you think differently as well. So the millennials are in this position to where now they're becoming the elder statesmen because the baby boomers are retiring and the, the, the Gen Zers, I think it is, are not yet there. And we're also inheriting or undergoing the largest transfer of wealth ever known to man. And so because we just think differently than our predecessors, there's just certain things that we're going to weigh different and that you know the, the the employee experience is one of them. So how do you recruit, you know, new talent? Like to your point, people want to work with a place or at a place generally speaking where they agree with their values and how do you measure that? How do you understand that? Well, the best way to measure or understand anything, in my opinion, is through data points. You talk about the intangibles, about, you know, SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, does a, a fascinating study or provided a fascinating study 
where the the balance sheet of any given company over the last 30 40 years has has transformed itself dramatically you know in the 70s 10% was a 10% of the asset base was allocated towards intangibles and today it's like i think it's like 70% it's something something incredibly high well if that's the case how do you measure competitive differentiator like you theoretically you can't see an intangible it's not like pp&e where like there's the plant like that's amazing or there there's the asset like that looks pretty cool you have to have non-fundamental data points that help highlight what the differentiators of that intangibles or what those intangibles are and it also it helps you make financial decisions right if if the world really is focused on decarbonization and if you're a company undergoing let's say any sort of M&A transaction, and let's say you have any goal in place, you know, you want to do your diligence to understand how that asset is going to impact current operations. And today, that means health and safety, that means emissions, that means water stewardship, that means spills, right? Because you don't want to fall in a position where you purchase an asset or acquire an asset base, look underneath the hood a little bit in a more detailed fashion, and then say something along the lines of, wow, now we have to allocate a couple million dollars more of CapEx to get this asset where we need to be. You, you don't want to fall in that position. Yeah, definitely. Well, Dan, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. This was a great discussion, and I'm sure the listeners have learned a lot as, as I have. Yeah, I appreciate the time. This was great. I, I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you.